everyone, and welcome to episode 228 of the Medieval Podcast. I'm Danielle Sobolski, also known as the 5-Minute Medievalist. When it comes to both spiritual and temporal power, some of the most important and influential figures of the Middle Ages were bishops. As educated men of the church, they wrote books on theology and rubbed elbows with nobility and even royalty. However, their job was not just to minister to the rich, but to the poor as well. From our moment in time hundreds of years later, it can sometimes be difficult to access the ways in which bishops performed their ministry and how they spoke to their everyday parishioners. Enter William of Auvergne, Bishop of Paris. This week, I spoke with Dr. Leslie Smith about William of Auvergne, his works, and his ministry. Leslie is fellow and tutor in politics as well as senior tutor at Harris Manchester College, Oxford University, where she's professor of medieval intellectual history. She's the author of several books, including Masters of the Sacred Page, Theology in the Latin West to 1274, and The Ten Commandments, Interpreting the Bible in the Medieval World. Her new book is Fragments of a World, William of Auvergne and His Medieval Life. Our conversation on what it meant to be a 13th century bishop of Paris, what makes William so special, and how he tended to his spiritual flock is coming up right after this. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, thank you, Leslie, for joining me to talk about one of the Middle Ages' most important theologians, I think, and a really interesting guy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for being interested in him. Okay, so tell us right at the outset, who is this guy? Who is William? Where did he live and when did he live? He's called William of Auvergne because, like many people in the Middle Ages, his name is the place that we think he came from. So he came from the Auvergne in the south of what's now France, but which at the time, which is the very late 12th century, we think he was born maybe about 1180. But at that point, Auvergne was a separate part. The Auvergne and the Languedoc was a separate part away from France. And it had its own language, which was called Occitan. And in fact, William himself probably spoke a, a dialect called Auvergne. So he's already dual lingual before we start. And he is born, we don't really know where or exactly when. And we think he maybe went to the cathedral school in Aurillac, the sort of regional capital. And he was obviously good at school. So again, there's contradictory evidence about whether his family were rich or whether his family were poor and maybe he was just in the middle somewhere but he was good at it I think and so eventually he has higher education possibly in Montpellier again in the south still in the south and that's interesting because Montpellier was a place near the Mediterranean and near the Pyrenees and Iberia, where there were lots of Jews and lots of Muslims and a very diverse population. And that seems to be reflected in his thinking and his writing later on. So I think maybe he went initially to university in Montpellier and studied arts. And then eventually he finds his way to Paris 
And Paris at the time is the Capetian king's capital, and it's the capital of learning in the Latin West. And it's a very exciting, humming, buzzing kind of place. Really, Philip II, who's the king, is rebuilding the city. He's building city walls. He's paving the streets. He's putting in street lighting. And he loves having this new group of scholars in his capital because he thinks that intellectuals reflect well on himself. I mean, if only our governments would think the same things. <laughs> yeah. So William finds himself in Paris and he studies theology. And again, he's terrific at it. So we now have the first definite date for his life, which is 1223, when we know he became a canon of Notre Dame Cathedral, which means he's a kind of teacher, a teacher of the students who came to the cathedral school at Notre Dame. But it's a seriously good thing to have got. You know, it's a sort of, it's like being a tenured professor. And it may be at this point that he was already over halfway through his life. But that's the first date, the first definite date we know for him. It's hard to believe from this perspective where everybody's life is documented with photos and commentary, but it's really (laughs) not unusual in the Middle Ages to not get a picture of someone until they become a star in their career. But even for your book, you tried to piece together his childhood. Why did you want to do that for this book? Well, part of what I wanted to do with the book was not just write about William, but try and think about whether or not we can write biographies of medieval people. And the problem of that is just evidence. You know, how do we find evidence? And so it seems to me we can say to ourselves, well, it's just not possible. We can't do this. No, really, not at all. But I thought that William gives us a better chance than many people of being able to do that because of the kind of evidence that he leaves us, because of the kinds of writings he leaves. And so I wanted to try, you can't write a conventional narrative, you know, he did this and then he did this and then he did this and then he did this, but he writes about the whole world. One of his favorite sayings, which comes from Alan of Lille, and that might also be a Montpellier connection, is he says, the world is a book. And every single created thing is a page in that book. And from every page, we can read about God and the love of God. So he looks around the world and everything he sees in the world is kind of grist to his mill. So his writings are just full of the world around him. And so what I try and do is not sort of the simple biographical fallacy that you can look at somebody's writing and say, oh, well, he must have done that. But to look at the way he talks about the world and say, can we draw any conclusions at all from just his observation and his comments on this and give us a picture of what life, even if not William's life, then late 12th century, early 13th century life might have been like. And so that's why it's called Fragments of a World, because we can't have a straightforward, perfect narrative, but we can look at fragments and we can sort of walk around him, looking at him from different facets and angles. And I wanted to try and see if I could make that convincing and to draw a portrait of a real person, a real human being. I think that it works in a way that is really lovely and is not completely unprecedented in that this is how people put together Shakespeare's works and his biography (laughs) as well by picking out his analogies, for example, and rebuilding it. And it's nice to see this applied to the Middle Ages and such an interesting figure. So I think you've done a brilliant job of trying to reconstruct those bits that we can't possibly know, which is a lot when it comes to the (laughs) Middle Ages. So we found him in the middle of Paris, the heart of Paris and its intellectual Mm -hmm. circles. What Mm -hmm. happens to him there? Well, he seems to be set on a a university career. He, He loves teaching and he clearly talks about teaching in really important terms. He thinks that the the office of teacher and the vocation of teacher is really important. And it seems like he's set for life because he hasn't become a priest. In order to be in university, you have to be what's called a clerk in holy orders. So you have to be the lowest form of church life. But he's never gone beyond that. He's never bothered. It doesn't look as though he's got those kinds of ambitions. So you would read that. And he started to write and started to what we would call publish. But then suddenly... Out of the blue, it seems, he finds himself made Bishop of Paris by the Pope at the time, Gregory IX. (laughs) And it happens in a strange sort of way. The Bishop of Paris dies, and what usually happens is that the canons of the cathedral, Notre Dame, the same, the, the cathedral that we now know today, which is being built at the time, 
they have to elect a new bishop. And quite recently, there has been a Lateran Council, the fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And that lays down how you have to elect a bishop. And William thinks that the canons have gone about it illegally. And so he points this out and the Pope's representative says, no, you're quite right, that is wrong, you'll have to do it again. So they do it again and William's still not convinced. And this time the Pope's representative says, yes, you're quite right. And William then goes to Rome to talk to Gregory the Ninth about it. And Gregory the Ninth looks at this chap and says, well, you're an educated sort of man. You seem man of honor. You seem a good sort of chap. You can be Bishop of Paris. <laughs> so... Surprise! <laughs> Surprise! And one of the reasons I think it was sort of not planned is that before Gregory can make him bishop, he has to actually make him a priest. Mm -hmm. So he has to start by ordaining him priest, and then he can be made bishop. And so he goes away as a scholar, he comes back to Paris, and he's the Bishop of Paris. <laughs> the really interesting question is, you know, how much did he intend it? And we can't know, but I sometimes think that maybe he looked around the other candidates. And although he hadn't really intended to be Bishop of Paris, he looks at who might possibly be Bishop of Paris mm -hmm. and thinks, you know what, I don't think so. <laughs> so maybe he decides in the end that he'd better have a go, you know, that he'd better try being Bishop of Paris. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because he must have been looking around saying, these guys don't even know what the fourth Lateran just said. I mean, exactly. how can they be in charge of all of Paris? Exactly. But somebody who hasn't been ordained a priest doesn't look like they usually have the ambition to become a bishop or mm. anything like that. So it does seem like a bit of a surprise, especially for somebody that grew up as we can imagine or guess outside of the mm. political circles that would usually inform such a thing. Absolutely. That's exactly right. You know, there are many med medieval people and we can see them plotting their way up to the top, making the right moves, you know, becoming subdeacon here and archdeacon here and so forth. But not William. It's, it really does seem to have been a surprise to everybody. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think he had not thought about what it might be to be in charge. He's a great admirer of the canons of the Fourth Lateran Council, Innocence III's attempt to try and reform and revivify the church. And many of the things he does, because he starts acting straight away, are in line with the canons of the Fourth Lateran Council. So he tries to bring things into order and to make sure that people are properly prepared for the roles they have and that priests act well and that his parishioners are properly looked after. And so he throws himself into it and he dies in harness. When he dies in 1249, he's still Bishop of Paris and he's still working as Bishop of Paris. Mm -hmm. Well, let's pause here for a second because we're gesturing a little bit at what his role was, what the job mm. was. Can you tell us mm. a little bit more about what that job was being the Bishop of Paris and who he's involved with, who he's dealing with every day? What was that role like? Well, one of the interesting things, and, and certainly is interesting for his sermons, which I think we'll probably come on to later on, is that he is involved with the whole range of people in Paris. And Paris is, you know, a big city by Northern European standards. And he knows the lowest parishioners, he talks to the lowest parishioners, and he knows a bit of what their lives are like. And on the other hand, he deals with the king and the queen and the court, and particularly with the queen mother, Blanche of Castile, who is a fellow southerner. She's originally from Spain, obviously, and they seem to have become friends. Blanche has a lot of people from the south around her in her court. And William seems to have been one of the people that she's very fond of. He was, we think, her confessor, but also he clearly provides advice and they talk to each other a lot, I think, and are friends. So he deals with everybody from the court, down through the nobles, down through his parish clergy, down through the Franciscans and Dominican friars who are just entering Paris at that time and trying to get a foothold in Paris. And William's very important in, in their development, right down through... Well, for instance, prostituted women in Paris. Very unusually, William doesn't say about prostituted women that they're bad, they're immoral, that they're doing this sort of thing and it's terrible. He says, these women do this because they're poor. They've mm -hmm. got no other means of keeping themselves. And so what he does is he sets up 
a house for them to live together called the Fildia, the Daughters of God. And it's so they can leave that profession behind and they can go and live together and they can live moral lives together in this house. And it's sort of typical of him in many ways that a, it's practical. It's a good practical solution. He looks often for practical solutions and it's a recognition of the reality of life. And in some ways, it's not judgmental, which isn't to say, I mean, you know, all medieval bishops were in some ways judgmental. But on the other hand, he takes often a fresh and imaginative look. He's quite good at imagining what other kinds of people's lives are like and what you can do to make those lives better. So mm-hmm. one of the great things about him is that he can talk to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I think is interesting about the way you've looked at his life in that these seem like clues as to someone who might have come up through the ranks so they have a lot more sympathy. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to sex workers, I mean, this is something he would be coming across as a student. So maybe that doesn't tell us anything because we know (laughs) that students and prostitution, they're not too far apart, especially in cities like Paris. (laughs) So he might have just encountered these people in that context but he does have a lot of sympathy for people who are impoverished in a way that maybe makes us think hmm what could his background have been like so let's let's come to his sermons because these Mm. are really where the heart of the research that you're doing so can you Mm. tell us what sources did you find that tell us anything about william he's got a lot of writing i must say and and he was again writing to the day he died he's got a lot of you might think of as ordinary philosophical theology that a university professor at that time would write. So he's written on the Trinity, he's written on the soul, he's written on virtues and vices, he's written like Anselm, like Saint Anselm, a a tract called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. And there's a fantastic book called De Universo, on the whole universe of creatures, you know. So William believes that he has, you know, because God's canvas is so gigantic, William has to have a go at this as well. You know, mm-hmm. He's good at those sorts of things. But the remarkable thing about William, and I think which sort of makes the book possible, is that we have nearly 600 surviving sermons. And unlike most sermons of the time and a bit later, they're not model sermons. What we tend to have are collections of sermons, a bit like collections of Cicero's speeches. You know, they're put together later and they're edited and they're edited for other people to read and for other people to use. So the idea is that good preachers would edit their own sermons so that less good preachers could read these model sermons and they could make their own sermons from them. But the fantastic thing about these sermons of William is that they seem to be his own notes to himself. And so sometimes he just uses the sort of equivalent of bullet points, you know, so when he knows how he's going to interpret something or interpret a biblical text, he'll just put point, 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 point. And that's a little note to himself. Or he'll sometimes say, tell the story of the Archdeacon of Beauvais, something like that. And he never bothers to write it down because he knows the story of the Archdeacon of Beauvais. The sermons always begin with a biblical text and he'll often begin, tell a story. And so he's just reminding himself tell a story, you know, because he knows he can stand up in the pulpit and he can tell a story to his audience. And he tells, and once, I think sort of with remarkable ambition, he says, tell the story of the whole gospel. Yeah. <laughs> it's going a bit far, really. <laughs> it's really remarkable. So sometimes the sermon notes are in Latin because by now he is quadrilingual, certainly. He's got his Auvergne dialect, his Occitan, his Latin, because all serious education in the Middle Ages is Latin, and he's moved to the north. He's moved to Paris, and the language, the kind of French they use there is called the Languedoc, which he calls Gallic, and is commonly called Gallic, the vulgar tongue, he says. Hmm. And so he will write the sermon notes in Latin, but he'll put beside them often Gallice, and he'll write what the word is in Gallic to remind himself. And I think these things are because these are 
are words that he wouldn't commonly use every day in his everyday life. And this is not, this is by now his fourth language. So he's reminding himself of the kind of words that his audience are going to understand. So when he talks about certain kinds of food or when he talks about women's makeup or when he talks about certain kinds of animal, he'll say, ut vulgo dikitur, you know, kind of, you know, a galiche, and remind himself that this is the word he should be using. And I think one of the things about that is that whenever you read William, in all his forms of writing, really, but particularly in the sermons, he's always thinking about the audience. Who is in front of me and how do I address them? How do I get them to listen? How do I make contact with these people? Sometimes he'll preach on the same text, but you can see that the audience were different. The congregations were different because he attacks them from different angles, you know, more sort of scholarly when he's preaching to clergy and much more sort of everyday life when he's preaching to ordinary congregations. And so these sermons are just fantastic. I think they're a wonderful resource and great to read. Yes, it's a treasure. I can't imagine the joy of coming across something like this because it is so personal. And this is something that you mentioned in your book quite a lot is that you often have formulaic writing in the Middle Ages, and this is meant yes. to make people anonymous. That's just how it was at yes. the time. You wanted to humble yourself by making yourself anonymous. But this is just a person just exploding all over the page. Yes, it is. That's right. And he's just fascinated by language, you know, which is why I've sort of already noted, you know, he's at least quadrilingual because he's really aware in ways that we might think are very modern of the power of language and how language makes the world. You know, how we use language and how language and grammar and syntax work makes the world in certain ways. But often, too, he'll say things like, well, in the vernacular Spanish, the word for that is so-and-so, or the Hebrew word for that is this, and that might tell us that something else is different. Or Avicenna says that, but he knows that that's a poor mirror of what God actually is. So he knows that language both creates the world, but also that it's an inadequate substitute for the world that God has really made. But language fascinates him. And so his use of language is really so vivid and so flavorsome somewhere. <laughs> you know, that you really read it and you think, yep, that's got to be William. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and you have a whole chapter just on food and drink and how he uses this to speak to his <laughs> congregation. So tell us, what kind of stuff does he use when he's talking about food and drink? How does he address his audience and get them to think about God and food in the same way? <laughs> well, it's part of the idea that the world is a book, you know, so you can take anything and you can take that thing and you can look at what God is and look at what God is saying about the world and about spirituality through those things for instance, uses metaphors about different kinds of cooking for different kinds of spiritual life. So he'll say, well, roasting is like this, but if we fry something, it's like this. So, <laughs> you know, having something in a pan is like this. It was terrifically good for my Latin vocabulary because, you know, you don't really <laughs> usually know the words for different kinds of sausage, but, you know, you have to kind of work them out. You know, this is kind of, What is that word? Oh, it means frying pan, you know, that kind of thing. So, which was terrific, actually. And so he's got a lot about that. And God is a cook. God is producing the these sorts of things together. God makes a meal and it's a perfect meal. But also, of course, everything has its bad side because the devil can turn all of this to bad. So, you know, only thinking about your stomach, that's gluttony. And preaching to monks once, he says that if you make your stomach your God, you leave your hope of heaven in the latrine. <laughs> and, <it's kind> of <laughs> and it's kind of very typically, William, that it's it can be really earthy times, you know, the sorts of things. Yes. But he's got some great things. He says there's no bunch of grapes that isn't better pressed. So he likes to drink. You know, <laughs> he likes to drink of wine. But there is a wonderful contemporary story of him told about him. He's at dinner in his Episcopal palace and he has as a guest the king's chamberlain. And the king's chamberlain turns to William and says, I don't know why you have that jug of water on the table, because you never water your wine. I notice that you have the good wines from the south, but you never actually pour the water in the wine. So, you know, that water, it serves no purpose. And William says, oh, no, 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 you're wrong there. You know, because when you walk through the king's hall, you don't have to raise your voice 
But everybody knows that when you walk through the King's Hall, they have to behave themselves. So he says, sometimes I reach for the wine and then I see the water and I stop. (laughs) (laughs) This would definitely be someone that you'd want to have a dinner party with if you had a time machine, I think. (laughs) You can see that having dinner with them would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the things that you mentioned, and I'm thinking about all of these things at once, the wine, the earthiness, all of these things might be a surprise to people who look back to the Middle Ages and think Mm. that a Catholic bishop is going to be very straight-laced. And one Mm. of the things that might surprise people as well is how widely read he was. So you, you've you said that he's he's read Hebrew writers, he's read Islamic writers, like Avicenna especially. Can you mm. tell us about how he interacted with this scholarship? Because I think it might be a surprise to some people who, who've never come across this kind of learning before. Yes. I mean, he's a remarkable reader. He is. And it's one of the reasons that some modern scholarship puts his birthday about 1190. But his 19th century biographer, Noel Valois, puts it around 1180. And I think, yes, just before then, because otherwise I just don't see how he could have read everything he's read. (laughs) He's remarkably well read. So he certainly has read Jewish writers and particularly Maimonides, whose guide to the perplexed was very newly translated when, in part at least, it becomes more and more translated as William is teaching in Paris. And so William is the first person we know to quote Maimonides in any kind of Western theological work, and he's fascinated by how this works. He reads Jewish sources, and he's very interested in how Jewish sources interpret the Hebrew Bible. And he wants to look at how they're using vocabulary again and words and how they see things that aren't necessarily Christological. So William is particularly, he obviously he's preaching to the converted, as it were, every every day of the week, or at least, you know. But on the other hand, he knows that if you write something or if you just, if you're talking that only works for the converted, if you only talk about things that are matters of faith, that everybody has to believe in without sort of argument and proof and taking into account other kinds of beliefs about things, then nobody's going to be converted. Nobody's going to believe you. So what he thinks he has to do is go and read these other people so that he can address them on their own terms and he can understand them on their own terms. So Maimonides and other Hebrew writers, he's very, very interested in. But then remarkably, He's also interested in all the Arab scholarship that is coming at the beginning of the 13th century back through Spain and through the translations of the Spanish Islamic translators and people particularly like Averroes and Avicenna. And he is fascinated by their philosophical thought and he's fascinated by the way they describe the world. And what's really interesting is that he changes the way he argues And he changes the words he uses for God, reflecting Avicenna. So Avicenna, for instance, he's he's a digressive writer because he likes to include things. And William's writing is very much like that. He'll go off on digressions. But unlike many people, he actually comes back to where he was. (laughs) And he argues, unlike the sort of yes, no, Abelard sort of pro and con arguing, William argues by piling things on top of one another. So his most common sort of way of describing this is he says, and, 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 and in addition. And this is very like Avicenna. But what I find most extraordinary is that he moves to calling God simply primus, the first. And this is a vocabulary used by Avicenna. And I think it's because William is looking to find a description of God that can be something agreed to by all sorts of people. So you don't have to be a convinced Christian. You don't have to have certain kinds of Christological beliefs. You can see God as the first thing, the most prior, if you like, in the universe. God is the primus without which there can be nothing else. And it's very interesting that he doesn't much use Deus, he doesn't much use Dominus, he he just says primus, the being that necessarily is. Being is what is necessary about God, it is what God is. God is is isness, if you like. And, And it's one of the reasons that he loves everything that's created in the world, because that is a reflection of God's isness, essential isness. Mm-hmm. He has 
this joy around religion, his religion, at least, because I want to come back to this, that <laughs> is palpable. And you don't always see that sometimes. Mm. And I think you mentioned in the book too, that the joy that is expressed is in seriousness. And so you don't yes. see that joy always. But I think you get that through what William is saying about God. Mm. But I do want to come back to, he's reading these scholars of different faiths, but he's definitely mm. not agreeing with them. And in fact, he's pretty harsh to Avicenna in the end. <laughs> and he is involved in a massive book burning. So can you tell us a little bit about how mm. this works as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are things he describes Avicenna as great. You know, he says he is a great philosopher. But on the other hand, William, I mean, he's a medieval bishop and he knows that Islam is simply wrong. Mm -hmm. And so there is a book called On Faith and the Laws. And he looks at the laws of the Jews and the laws of the Muslims and the law of Christians as well, the gospel, the law of the gospel. And he wants to point out that the law of the Jews, the Mosaic law is wrong and the law of the Muslims is wrong too. And what's interesting is he does it in different ways. Obviously, Jews have a place in the Christian plan. And so Jews have to be accepted and the Mosaic law is also part of Christian gospel. So he tries to work out how Jews understand their law and try and make that have a place in his Christian understanding of the Bible. And that's very interesting. He knows that in the end, they've missed a trick because they somehow haven't realized the Messiah has come. But <laughs> never, nevertheless, they know what they're talking about and they're important and you have to be able to understand them because they're originally the people of God. And so that's important. They have a place at the end in God's plan. But Islam, he has much less understanding of or certainly patience for. And so the way he deals with Islam is much more, he does it by making fun of it, by mm. making his audience laugh about it. How can anybody believe this can be true? How can paradise be like this? Because this isn't paradise, it's just more of the same. And how can that be true? And again, his earthiness, you know, he says, if everybody's in paradise, you know, Where's all the food coming from? Where are all the children that are going to come from the sex in paradise? Where are they going to go? And he even says, you know, where is all the shit in paradise going to be? How can this be paradise? That's just nonsense. And he says, Avicenna, whom, you know, other occasions he thinks is wonderful. He said, how can such a great man have been taken in by such foolishness? Mm -hmm. And so it's very interesting, you know, because, well, People are contradictory in many, many ways. And, and one of the things I think about William is he has different facets to his personality. And that, for me, makes him seem like a real life person. You know, that some things we can feel that, yeah, he's just like us. And other things you think, whoa, that's quite a long <laughs> way away. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just so human to sympathize with one aspect of a person and really not with another part of yes, them. Yes, and yes. I mean, as the Bishop of Paris, he does have to come down hard on some mm -hmm. lines. And yes. yes, this does happen in Paris as part of a concerted effort with Blanche of Castile, for example, of burning Jewish books. Mm, that's right. And it's a very, very interesting episode. What happens is that the position of Jews is getting harder through the 13th century. But there's a good Jewish population living on the Ile de la Cité in Paris. There's quite a good Jewish community. But there is a converted Jew, a man called Nicolas Donan, Nicolas Donan, and he is converted to Christianity. And you might say, like many converts, he is zealous for making sure that the people he used to be a member of, you know, they are wrong. And so he goes to the Pope and says, these people, they don't believe in the Bible anymore. They believe in this book called the Talmud and the Talmud has all of these errors in it. And it's, you know, it's absolutely wrong. And we have to condemn the Talmud. And Gregory isn't very keen, it seems, to do anything about it. But Nicola really pushes. And finally, what Gregory does is he sends letters to all the sort of archbishops and rulers of Europe to say what you have to do is you have to collect up these Jewish books and you have to take them to the nearest Dominican house, the Friar's house, and they have to look at these books and decide whether or not Nicholas is right, whether they're saying these really evil things or not, whether they are completely misinterpreting religion or not. And if they are, you have to burn them. But interestingly enough, Gregory doesn't send these letters 
individually himself to the archbishops or to the heads of Europe. He sends them via William. And so the question becomes, is that because he knows that William is a Jew hater himself, and so he will zealously send them around to these people? Or is it because he thinks that William is sympathetic to the Jews and that William will act as a kind of gatekeeper and not send on the letters? And one of the things that's really interesting is that I did some digging around in various archives to try and find the letters that had gone around Europe. I couldn't find the copies of the letters anywhere else. So the only place this happens is in Paris. And that's partly because the king of Paris at that point, the Capetian king, is Louis the Ninth. And Louis the Ninth is a Capetian king who is very anti-Jewish. He doesn't want the Jews in his kingdom. So Louis is going to act. And Nicholas of Donat is also living in Paris and he's pushing Louis to do something about this. So they do indeed collect up the books around about 1240. They move to the Dominican convent. And then for about two years, nothing much happens. You know, it seems not to happen. But then eventually there is a sort of public hearing, sometimes called the trial of the Talmud. And interestingly enough, Louis puts his mother, Blanche of Castile, who is an intelligent and sensible woman, and he puts her in charge of the trial, as it were, the hearing. And she has various Christian bishops hearing it with her. And she also brings the learned Jews of Paris to put their case. And they have a hearing. And Blanche apparently asked, by all accounts, asks sensible and intelligent questions. And they seem to come down on the Jews' side. There's an account of this by the Jewish contributors. And so they think they've won, but Nicholas is still pushing. And so eventually, around about 1242, there is a burning of several cartloads of books in the town square in Paris, and these books go. And William is, he's not directly involved in it, but he is part of it. He can't not be. He's not the senior bishop, that's the Archbishop of Saint, but nevertheless, he's part of it all. And so the question really becomes, was this one among many that we don't know of? Would it have happened anywhere? Is William trying to not make it happen? Is William trying to make it happen? It's very difficult to know. But one of the things I think is very interesting from you know all of the reading that he's already been doing, as I say, he's read Maimonides, he's read Avicenna, he's read Averroes, he's read all sorts of non-Christian texts that he doesn't seem to me like a book burner. Mm -hmm. He seems to me like a book reader. You know, you read these books and then you argue with them, yes. But the idea of just burning books, that's not the sort of William I think I know. <laughs> but I'm very aware that you, of course, as a biographer, often come to really like your subject. And I'm very aware that it might just be that I'm biased on William's side. But the evidence is really fascinating at the time. Mm. Yes. And as you say, there is so much evidence that he was sympathetic to the point that he could be as the Bishop of Paris in that he is defending Jewish people or community as being part of God's plan, as you're saying, in ways that are spelled out pretty clearly. And that's something that you don't see all that much. So I don't think that you're completely off the mark here, but it is good to recognize that you might be liking the person that you're writing about and, and try and take a step back for sure. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, we were just talking about Dominicans, and I think for a lot of people, it might be hard to imagine a world without Dominicans and Franciscans, <laughs> but this moment, the Dominicans and Franciscans are new so they've mm. only just been established in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran mm. Council, at least acknowledged as being mm. okay. And yeah. they're starting to come to Paris. And it's actually William that gives them that foothold that they didn't have before. How did that happen? Well, he's become bishop. And there they are moving into Paris. And as I say, he's a, he's a good pastoral bishop. And he looks around. Paris is growing enormously. More people are moving in from the countryside. He looks at the inadequate parish situation, the parish setup. There are only basically two big parishes north of the river and one big parish south of the river. And he does a couple of things. He applies to the Pope Gregory IX to be able to divide these parishes so he can set up new churches and new parish priests. And he also looks around for people who are going to be able to help him and his perhaps not terribly educated priests 
to provide some pastoral care for all of these people who can actually go down to see these people where they work and where they live rather than waiting for the parishioners to come to them in churches. So he welcomes them. He says, yes, yep, you can come, you can set up house and you can be part of the university. You can learn from the university. And then eventually he allows them to teach at the university too. And so he gives them their first foothold in the university and my goodness do they take it you know within a generation they are in charge of mm -hmm. it but he just sees how very very useful they can be for him and towards him yeah yeah and i think that they represent these mendicant friars they represent the two sides of william in that dominicans are meant to be preachers but they're meant to be mm -hmm. intellectuals they're meant to yes. understand the letter of the law the ecclesiastical yes. law to the point at which yes. they become the inquisitors because they understand this yes. law so well and then there's the yes. franciscans who are just about the people <laughs> who want right. to be among the people and it seems exactly. like these are both groups that william could really sympathize with and want to deploy around the city Absolutely. He he sees how useful they're going to be and how he can deploy them in different situations around the city. That's right. And the Franciscans, of course, I mean, Francis is well known for his love of the animal world. And William, too, has these wonderful descriptions of animals that I think are absolutely terrific. <laughs> and so I wonder if there isn't a, you know, a sort of sense of fellow feeling there amongst Franciscans and Dominicans. Mm. But I think one of the ironies of it is that as I say, within a generation, the Franciscans and Dominicans have sort of taken over the university in many ways. And it's their organizations that publicize and copy and make sure that the work, the theology that is happening in their orders is going to be copied and distributed across Europe. And William never becomes a member of an order. He's always a secular priest to the end of his life. And that's part of the reason that he drops out of the historical record, I think, because he doesn't have an order who can make sure that his memory continues and that his works are copied. In in some ways, that's that is ironical, you know, that he's he's given them their start, but he he doesn't himself belong. So he's not <laughs> he's not carried forward by them. Yeah, he's on the other side going, wait, don't I get to become a saint? Come on. <laughs> I worked so hard. <laughs> now, you've you've divided the book out into a whole bunch of really interesting, amazing categories, which we're not going to get to. So I'm going to ask you <laughs> to pick one of them and say, which one was the most fun for you to dig into? You talk about uh, there's a chapter on women, there's a chapter on his relationship with Jews, there's a chapter mm -hmm. on animals, food. Which one mm -hmm. was the most fun for you to dig into? Oh, well, there's, I mean, the fun, I would say, I, I really enjoyed animals. You know, he, he loves spiders and that was really <laughs> terrific. You know, And spiders are, a, you know, they go back to the Stoics using spiders as examples. But on the other hand, you can't help think that he, he's an observant man. He really is. And he talks about his admiration for spiders and how intrepid they are and how clever they are. And he says, how can they know before they've even seen a fly that they have to weave a web, they have to spin a web. How can they know that this is what they, how can a tiny spider know that it has to spin a web? And they don't even have to see the fly before they realize the fly is there. And it's rather wonderful because he uses it as an example of talking about people and their souls. So he says every soul, every creature has a law. It's born with an internal law given by God, and that's how it should live its life. And God also gives a lamp so that you can light the way and understand that law and that book and that law. And everything is put together in a book. So he says everything has the spider has a law and a book and a lamp. And you can just imagine these tiny little spiders carrying their law in their book. <laughs> but he's remarkable for that. You know, how do, how do they know? What is it that makes them understand? How do they have this innate sense that this is what they must do? And I just found that fascinating, really. But the other thing that was also extraordinary, I think, was when I was working on the chapter on the weak, because lots of medieval theology talks about physical weakness as a sign of moral weakness. It's a sign, really, that either the person themselves is morally weak or their family were morally weak. And William is not like that at all. He says, well, yep, you know, children aren't all born perfect, but that isn't a sign that there's something wrong. It's just a mistake. It's just these things happen. You know, we don't know 
what's going on. And actually, that's just, you can't judge people by how they look. And he's remarkable for his saying that every person, whether they be mentally ill or whether they be physically ill or whether they, they be weak or particularly talks about blind people, which again, in the Middle Ages, blindness was often a metaphor for spiritual blindness as well. Not in William. He says, these things, they don't affect your soul. Every person has a whole soul, and that whole soul has been created by God and is acceptable by God. So we have to treat all these people equally because they're all children of God. And that's a really extraordinary thing, I think. That was my favorite chapter, actually, as well, because <laughs> maybe it's the compassion that you want someone to extend to people who maybe are not getting a lot of compassion in other writings at the time. But it was also very interesting. And the part about blindness was interesting to me, too, because he says it's not that blindness is a defect. It's that vision is a miracle. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And of course, it's, you know, Augustine of Hippo says that too, you know, it's just so ordinary that we forget about it. But William says that, you know, it's it's not that this is odd. What's amazing is that God has given vision to so many of us. And of course, one of the great things that I discovered about him there is he talks about how blind people navigate. You know, he's, so he talks about blind people who have sticks and he says, you know, they tap and by the noise that the tapping makes, they can tell if they're near water, are they near the river, or are they, you know, are they near different kinds of buildings and, and what's around them, and they can listen to the tapping. Or he says, you can hire a small boy, and the small boy will navigate you around town. But he says, really, small boys are not very reliable. And the best <laughs> thing you know, he says, it's much better if you have a dog. <laughs> yes. I mean, I had no idea that there were guide dogs in the Middle Ages, but clearly... William says the best thing to do is to have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. And he does love a good dog. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about William. It's just been such a joy to talk to you. And I was so happy to read your book and get to know this figure so much better because he is a remarkable preacher. And I'm so happy that you've written this book and now we can all learn more about him. So thanks so much, Leslie, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Bye-bye. To find out more about Leslie's work, you can visit her faculty page at theology.ox.ac.uk slash people slash professor hyphen Leslie hyphen Smith. Her new book is Fragments of a World, William of Auvergne and His Medieval Life. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we go, here's Peter from Medievalist.net to tell us what's on the website. What's going on this week, Peter? Hey, hey. So we have a little art history news. There's a painting from 15th century France called the Melon Diptych. The best way to describe it is a picture of Virgin Mary on one side, two other guys on the other. It's kind of famous for being a depiction of Agnes Sorel as a Virgin Mary, and she was the mistress of the French king, Charles VII. Mm -hmm. But what some historians have discovered was an object in it. This kind of weird-looking rock is actually an Arcuian hand axe wow and th this is a prehistoric we're talking like half a million years ago these things were used and there's several of these objects still around but this is the first time it was depicted in any kind of middle ages view and so it shows that people back then were interested in these weird 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 shaped rocks <laughs> so that was kind of fun to have that kind of piece and we also have a piece about a 14th century gauntlet that was discovered just outside a swiss castle so it's, it's pretty much intact, which is pretty cool to see. You don't get very much medieval armor that's this well done. Plus, we have the story of this charitable bequest that happened in Florence in 1330. And the guy wanted to give out money to the poor. And he wanted it straight. Like, I don't want 
be given to a church or to like a, an organization that goes straight to the poor. And it was fun because the way they set it up was they made sure that people knew about it from all over Tuscany. They came in and they locked them inside churches <laughs> on a particular day. So like in the morning, you all come into the church and the, you'd be locked in there. And then as you went out, they would give you the money. And that was to prevent people from church shopping, you know, going to church to church in Florence <laughs> to get their money. So all that on medievalist.net. Okay. I have to know how many people benefited from this charity. According to the Chronicler, 21,000 people. That is incredible. Either that guy was really charitable or he had a lot of sins to repent for. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Amazing. What a story. Well, everyone. Interesting day in Florence. <laughs> yeah, what a day. Well, everyone can check that out and find out all about this amazing act of charity. That is so cool. Thanks for stopping by, Peter, and telling us what's on the website. Thanks. Thank you to everyone who supports my work and that of other indie historians through Medievalist.net's Patreon page. Patrons have access to all sorts of amazing goodies like subscriptions to Medieval World magazine, a book club, digital downloads, and ad-free versions of Medievalist.net and this podcast. And if you're a member of the book club this month, I hope you'll enjoy my book, How to Live Like a Monk, which will hopefully get you started off on the right foot this year, courtesy of Abbeville Press. If your New Year's resolution is to support your favorite podcaster through patronage, I hope you'll check out patreon.com slash medievalists. For everything from bishops to hyssop, follow Medievalist.net on Facebook or Twitter at Medievalists. You can find me, Danielle Sabalski, across social media at 5MIN Medievalist or 5 Minute Medievalist. And you can find my books at all your favorite bookstores where you can get hold of Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World, now out in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Our music is Beyond the Warriors by Geefrog. Thanks for listening, and have yourself a wonderful day. Yeah.